On Wednesdays, the Environmental Studies Department at Emory University offers free waffles. It's known as Waffle Wednesdays. Not much of a surprise there. Uh, and this weekly perk often attracts freshmen seeking a cheap breakfast while on campus. My initial foray into environmentalism was a little bit more by chance and a little bit more because I really enjoyed eating waffles at the Environmental Studies Department that they offered for free every Wednesday. Brenda Chu was one of those freshmen in 2009. Brenda was outdoorsy, and she enjoyed spending her time with people at the Environmental Studies School. But she hadn't necessarily sold herself on turning those interests into a career. You got to remember, at that time in South Georgia, not many people were talking about climate change or clean energy, nor did she have any exposure to it growing up. I did care about climate change, and just the environment as a whole. But I also would say that I didn't have a ton of exposure to it because I grew up in Florida and in an immigrant, you know, Asian household. And it was just not exposed to thinking about environmentalism and thinking about this as a career path. To be honest, after I declared an environmental studies major, my dad was like, what are you going to do? Flip burger for the rest of your life? (laughs) And then one Wednesday, while Brenda was eating her waffle, a bearded hippie in Teva sandals approached her. His name was Dr. Wagner. He was a director of the Environmental Studies Department at Emory, and he wanted to talk to Brenda about declaring a major. The director of the, the department was just like, Brenda, let's talk about your future. And he kind of just, I'm like mid-waffle, and he kind of herded me into his office. And by the time I finished my waffle, I'd signed the papers and became an environmental studies major. And here I am today. Maybe it was her love of the outdoors, or maybe it was Dr. Wagner's laid back vibe, or perhaps the free waffles. Whatever it was, Brenda's decision to major in environmental studies changed her career. It also brought her to a trip to Iceland, where she would discover a passion for clean energy and open her eyes to some of the innovative technologies shaping the future of the grid. But what was really cool about being in Iceland, it's just this like clean energy gold mine. They have geothermal. We visited their hydro plants. We, I saw uh, methane capture within their landfills and how they were using that for uh, powering vehicles. So they were testing a lot of different technologies out much earlier. I think this was in 2010, 2009. So I got that exposure because I was not able to study clean energy back in the actual programs that were offered at Emory at that time. And when I went there, I was I was drinking the Kool-Aid and I was like, I want to work in clean energy. So that was that was step two. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people think utilities don't innovate fast enough and that they're slow to adopt new technology. But in truth, the industry is full of people trying to make the grid smarter, cleaner, and more reliable. This week, I'm talking to Virtual Peaker's Brenda Chu about demand flexibility and managing a grid that's saturated with distributed energy. Distributed energy resources, or DERS as they're commonly referred to, can be a powerful tool for managing the local grid. It's more complicated to manage than traditional electricity delivery from central power plants, but it's vital for making the grid cleaner, more dynamic, and more resilient. 
Brenda Chu has been researching this concept for years. Now she's helping put it into practice as a director of product management at Virtual Peaker. I think we're past the early adopting phase for thinking about DR. Now it's just a lot more uh, approachable or available for utilities of all different shapes and sizes to be thinking about and to stand up a program. That was really specifically interesting for me because I spent so much time on the research end and talking about these different programs, but I always kind of wanted to understand like how and to see it myself. Grid management is constantly evolving. That's why I wanted to speak with Brenda about her research on demand response and how it shapes her work as a technology provider. We started with her time at the Smart Electric Power Alliance. Let's dig into some of your uh, your past here. So you started writing about demand response back in 2017 when you joined the Smart Electric Power Alliance. What did you cover in the first report that you wrote? The demand response market snapshots were like my babies. Each one took probably nine plus months. So I think they actually have the life cycle of creating a human. And <laughs> when I started it in 2017, that was from scratch. So it was thinking about what data to collect, how do you define the market, what is demand response? And I'm kind of using the air quotes because within this industry, we always have this challenge of semantics and thinking through what does each term mean to different people? How do we make that very, very clear? And I think in 2017, we were right along the edges of this turning point in how we talk about and think about demand response, how we think about demand flexibility. I think there is the old school, traditional views of what is DR. And that typically was thinking about one-way switches, maybe uh, telephone calls, emergency events. And it was a lot of work to get a lot of different stakeholders that were involved with that report on the same page and to think about how we define it and what we capture in that report itself. Uh, so the focus was to, one objective was to create a market report for the U.S., of the utility demand response market, and to be able to see that view of who is doing what, in what regions, what types of technologies are they using, and to think about how we define it and then how we show that market. And so in 2017, it was kind of like throwing the full everything in the kitchen sink into a report to say, here's what the market looks like, here's all these different technologies, and here's the variation of how different people are looking at and approaching it. So 2017 was kind of the baseline, and then 2018, you know, DR really started to take off. So how, how did the 2018 report change from the 2017 report? What was covered in 2018? By 2018, we were talking, we were edging more into the distribution side. We're talking about non-wires alternatives. We're talking about more about energy storage and EVs. Uh, and other technologies and how they work together. So kind of not just thinking about just thermostats and AC switches and water heaters, starting to also edge more into the capabilities of batteries, uh, edging more into the capabilities of managed charging, and thinking more broadly about distributed energy resources as a whole and how they can provide flexible capabilities back to the grid and for different services. So DR is a kind of near and dear to my heart. I launched Tendril's Orchestrated Energy Project around this time. Uh, worked with OPower on behavioral load shaping, behavioral demand response. I really see the power in some of these new approaches to DR moving kind of beyond that direct load control. I I'm curious, what was the first DR project that really impressed you? I do remember one of the projects that I really enjoyed was when, was I believe it was OPower, starting to work on behavioral programs. 
Baltimore Gas and Electric and their gamification program, how they were working on all this different messaging and getting customers engaged. Like I love that level of customer engagement and kind of the tying in of human psychology and how you get people to be motivated. I'm I mean, I love my Peloton. You know, I love the gamification. I'm always like, how can we take these features and how can we apply that to our new product too? Like they're, they do an excellent job. I know they're, that company has its different tech challenges, but the way that they engage with human psychology and motivate people, the way video games are starting to find ways to cut, to get people to enjoy exercise, but not think about it. I don't know. I just love the way that technology and how we, this potential to start to Engaged customers with their energy usage and bills is great. And Baltimore Gas and Electric and their work there on the gamification side was kind of the early phases where I'm like, wow, yes, look at all this potential. So you mentioned BGE. Now it's not just a big IOUs. They're piloting, experimenting with with demand response. But munis and co-ops are getting in on the action too. Yeah, how has demand response changed since you wrote that first report in 2017? I think when writing some of these reports, even in 2018, some of the case studies – that we would highlight are look at the bring your own battery program that Green Mountain Power is doing, right? Look at how innovative and forward thinking that is. You can get give these customers these power walls or other backup storage systems. You can split the benefits between the customer and to the grid, look at all these different ways. But now that really could be this more mainstream all co-ops, munis, all these utilities, the, the accessibility of being able to implement that, the technological kind of how quickly we can get those technologies ramped up for utility is much, much faster. And so if in a lot of ways, I think about it from a technological standpoint as it's become much more mainstream, the things that we thought were kind of far, further out into the future. Uh, that, that's really now. And I think that the other thing related to it is just the market and the conditions have changed a lot since then. And when I say that, I think about the state of the system and how we look at the electric grid. I think we used to think about demand response as much more of these, here, you're going to call some of these events. And there also wasn't as much need. But even in the past two years, demand response has become mainstream in the media you see them talk about it in California. You see them talk about it in Texas. There's climate change and extreme weather events that are requiring emergency, not even just, well, emergency, but also just demand response to participate way, way more. And then we also have these other regulatory trends that have opened up more opportunity. And I also think about Google and the White House and, and other efforts for 24-7 carbon-free electricity. We're thinking about things a lot more temporally as opposed to just peak events, right? And that conversation and the way we're looking at resources and the needs of the grid have totally become a lot less predictable and a lot more open to flexible resources. So I think the times have changed so much more where there's also way, way more appetite for looking at these resources. And I mean, munis and co-ops, we talk to them a lot now, and there's a lot more interest than I would have anticipated when I was researching and contacting a lot of these utilities back in 2018. Do you ever get frustrated or maybe does it ever surprise you how that growing appetite maybe is either slow to materialize or people don't sit down to have the meal maybe as quickly as you'd uh, like them to? I think that the thing that could really help everybody 
is folks, and this is not just utilities, but across all the different stakeholders that help make this happen. How can we allow these programs to stand up without as much of the, I don't know if it's red tape, but there's just a lot of challenges that get in the way. And there's a lot of fear of the risk or the cost and that kind of stifles innovation and in helping us to move more quickly to be able to, one, it could be fail quickly, but it's also to be able to test out and try things. Because I think that the technology is there, but there are certainly more programmatic, maybe more organizational or more policy, regulatory constraints that make it a lot harder to quickly stand things up and just try things. Have you have you seen the trend towards decarbonization start to maybe accelerate some of these investments or speed things up oh, yeah. in general? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the objectives of a utility previously was, it still is, but safe and reliable electricity was core, right? But then the number of utilities that also have decarbonization goals has grown exponentially. And that was one of the things that we were doing at SEPA as well, was tracking the carbon reduction goals and and the growth of that at different utilities and how that is getting incorporated. So I think that the objectives that utilities are juggling has expanded, which also starts to shift the ways that they're approaching, looking at different programs, how they engage customers, things like that. So let's let's dive into that piece. So why do you think demand flexibility endures can be the bridge between customers and the people who work on operations at a utility? Yeah, I think that this kind of goes back to thinking about some of those studies as well, right? In in 2018, I think the trend back then, one of the buzzwords was non-wires alternatives. And that was kind of the early foray into thinking about how distributed energy resources can provide value to the operational planning side of at utilities. So how could the, the system operators, system planners, how could they potentially look at DER as more as a resource? And non-wires was, was kind of the early stage. But I do think that non-wires alternatives, there have been a lot of challenges and learnings from that too, right? There's long lead times. It, I think it could be from 12 to 60 months and usually it has these really extensive suitability criteria. And then it goes back to benefit cost analysis and you need to make sure you're kind of looking at it within a vacuum to say, okay, here's the problem along the grid. Now let's look at different types of technologies or programs that could be set up to respond to it. Now, okay, you're approved. You can set that up now, go recruit, set it up, and then and then we'll make it happen. And that is a really kind of winded approach to it. And so the way I view and hope for the industry to progress is to just streamline all that. And part of it is essentially, I think it could be on the regulatory side is you have to look at things separately at the moment oftentimes. But if you already have these customer programs or if customers are already buying the the Ford Lightning, they're putting in the batteries, they have all these different technologies in their home. How can we more seamlessly just quickly pick up those different resources, provide value back to the customers, see it and be able to have that visibility and potentially control on those very specific areas along the distribution grid 
and not have to go through this very cumbersome process in the future, right? And I, I can see all the pieces are there. Also, from a technological standpoint, I can see what aspects need to be integrated or further built out to just make it really quick. But I do think that we're close to being able to allow that to happen, this really advanced way of, of managing and having uh, the locational, the temporal aspects and being able to bridge that with the operational side. And that's the way I can see it all kind of coming together and, and more seamlessly than before. But we, we still have some work to do. You know, this idea that behind the media resources are an opportunity to manage grid constraints as well. Is that specifically for the distribution grid or do you see this opportunity within transmission as well? Well, folks do do it on the transmission side as well. I think was it Bonneville Power Administration was looking at it for transmission constraints. So I think it, it could. It just depends. Depends on where and jurisdictionally what's going on. I think distribution wise that has some more immediate term ways to be able to help. And I think you think, I think about the trends of transportation electrification. And if you have a rich neighborhood where they're likely to adopt a bunch of electric vehicles, and then you're going to have these constraints, I think that there's just a, a more detailed way of zooming in, targeting different DERs, and thinking about how you can help manage and control so that you're not going to have to invest in all these infrastructure upgrades to accommodate also certain parts of the population that may be more well off and having to subsidize it via other customers that may not be benefiting from all those resources. But all of a sudden, there's all these infrastructure upgrades that have to happen. So I think that there are these, these kind of broader trends that then trickle into thinking about it more locationally. But then when you zoom back out, that has impacts on different people. And so I see DERs and thinking about how you can manage and control it from a distribution level, more locational, locationally as a really important factor to be thinking about and, and kind of an important lever into the future. So, so digging into that a little bit, I mean, h- how do we tie this concept to social equity? Because that is a very important topic right now. So how do we make sure everyone benefits from these types of infrastructure investments? I think that that is one of the big pieces that I've been thinking about is, yeah, there is a win-win-win aspect when you can leverage DERs in the areas where there's more, there are more of those constraints on the locational side. Because if you can reduce the costs for upgrading in those areas, you're also not socializing those costs more broadly. I think there's also a lot of work to do in terms of, one, also thinking about how you incentivize and you pay customers to participate, and two, how do we get more accessibility into these types of programs to these other communities? Maybe it's like the Justice 40 communities or just broader, low-moderate income communities, overcoming different distrust or skepticism towards maybe it's utilities or others controlling their their technologies. I think that there are different trends and aspects programmatically to be thinking about as well. So what do you think is at stake for utilities if they don't pursue a customer-centric DER strategy? What do they miss out on? Well, there's, there are a lot of different aspects. One, I think that it's a very confusing environment to navigate for a customer with all these different technologies, different programs, especially if you're in a different market. And if they want to get a solar panel, just trying to get quotes and navigate and make decisions is overwhelming. And then you 
you amplify that with the range of different types of technologies, the different markets and prices and, and trying to better understand how to navigate that. And I think that utilities have are positioned really well to be a trusted energy advisor. I think there are some utilities like SMUD that do a really great job of uh, really building a great relationship with their customers. So their customers will go to them for information because otherwise it can be very overwhelming as a customer trying to navigate and understand who you can trust and what decisions to go with. And utilities can help those customers, one, make those decisions, Two, I think that there's this opportunity to be seen as more of an innovator and offer new new business models, new ways for customers to engage. And three, I, prices are getting really expensive. I just moved up to New England and it is sticker shock getting into the, the my electricity bills in my home. And I would love to have a more holistic way of interacting with the utility and being and, and getting information to much more uh, intelligently manage my load and reduce my bills as well. What is the superpower that you bring to the energy transition? I very quickly can switch into more of like a deep thinking mode. And it's a little bit more of a less tangible aspect, but I recognize that from that research side or when I'm trying to work on a complex problem, I really enjoy kind of going into this like, dark cave of my mind with a certain problem or thing I'm trying to figure out. And it's a really satisfying uh, feeling to come out of it with, okay, you know, this is how we're going to do it. Or, or this, here's the framework of how we want to tackle this. And I really enjoy that deep strategic thinking that I can kind of go into, come in and out. And I recognize that that probably is my superpower. Well, Brenda, thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed our conversation today. I appreciate all the great work you've done at SEPA and ICF and are now doing a virtual peaker. Um, I wish you the, the best going forward. Thank you so much. With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with PostScript Media. Delivering on the clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify that journey. GridX is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, we increase consumer investment in clean energy, and we do that all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Stephen Lacey, and Camille Stennis, all from PostScript Media. The original theme song and mixing came from Sean Marquand. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and myself, Brad Langley. We really hope this show is providing value for you. And if it is, please help us spread the word. You can rate or review us at Apple and Spotify. You can also share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. Thanks for listening. I'm Brad Langley.